Hello everyone, back for another episode on Shay and Scripture. Um, this series or segment of different studies in the Word are going to actually come from some studying that I'm doing um, for the youth group at my church for our Sunday night study as I have allowed them to ask series of questions that either have come to their minds because of what they see in culture, because of different things that they wrestle with when they read the word, maybe questions they've had about God or about life or about decisions that are made and so on and so forth. And uh, we are calling this segment deconstructing um, for really one specific purpose. Number one, um, I have realized over the past decade, and I'm sure it's been going on for longer, but really over the past uh, two to three decades, we've seen this drove of, of people, people who have been raised in church have considered themselves to be deconstructing. It's, the, it's a term that's mentioned more and more and more publicly, even though probably the average person who has grown up in church has also deconstructed. And I'll explain that in a second. But you see people who have been hurt in church either by some type of sexual abuse over the past three decades. We've seen um, a lot more being exposed about sexual abuse cases or different types of abuses really in churches. And so there have been people who have deconstructed. They have walked away from the faith altogether because they've said that, oh, well, this person is not living in the way that they're supposed to, or I've had this question about my sexuality, or I've had this question about gender, or I've had this question about this or that, and I've never really gotten an answer. Uh, they was just bashed from the pulpit, but no one's actually helped me walk these things out. So, so their deconstructing would be for the entire institution of the church to burn to the ground because it is not helping people. That's, that's one lens. The other lens would be the lens that I would say that, um, there are, there's a large majority over the past three decades of people who say they're deconstructing or even being encouraged to deconstruct is you have people who have grown up in church and who have tethered things or attached things to the gospel that should not be there. We have attached either um, figures in our churches, whether that be the pastor. And so we worship the pastor and not Jesus. So when that pastor fails, we walk away from the faith altogether because we are unclear of what we're actually left with. And so it is recommended in these circles. Hey, everyone should be untethering. You should be looking at scripture, looking at the gospel, looking at the person and work of cross and saying of Christ and saying, have I added something to this that when this thing fails, I'm going to throw out Christ and the gospel when actually Christ is the thing that stays consistent and firm and faithful despite the unbrokenness and unfaithfulness of everything else around us. So that's kind of where this has come from. Not that any of my youth are deconstructing, but I want them to, to be able to think through a biblical lens of the different doubts and questions that probably will come once they graduate from high school and they realize wait, I may have attached this thing or this person or this activity or this YEC or this camp to my faith. And now that these things are gone, what do I really believe? And how do I go about getting answers and wisdom and insight and living a faithful life and following Jesus? So the first question that we're going to tackle that one of the kids asked, and we're going to have to really look a little deeper and tease this out a little better. But one of the first questions that was asked that we're going to tackle is why does God give us 
choices. Now this student, and again, they've made it anonymous, so I have no idea what student this was, but this student also put slash chances because the word choices and chances um, talk about in scripture, two different characteristics of God and his character and, and how human beings play a part in that. We're going to tackle the two separately. So today we're going to specifically talk about why does God give us choices? And I will say that um, when I do this with the students, it is more conversation focused. They're going to get to study the scriptures first and kind of work this out in their mind. I'm going to have some preset questions and then we're going to talk about it together. And I will primarily lead the latter half of the study. But for the sake of the podcast episode, um, it's just me in my apartment recording this. So you're not going to hear dialogue, but I would encourage you to take notes, to pause, to have your Bible, to pause the, the podcast at any moment and actually think through these things for yourself. Why does God give us choices? And when we begin to work this out, we're going to see why this causes a lot of trouble in the mind of people. Um, most atheists, I just actually finished reading a book called There's a God by Anthony Flua. Um, it's like a notorious story of how a well-known atheist now believes there is a God. And, and the story is this guy, a well-known philosopher, is actually working through using empirical science about how he discovered that there actually is some type of being. And he again, he doesn't identify it as, as Jesus or Allah or any other God that any religion would would say, but he looks at it and he says, according to what we see in nature and the design and detail and the, the order of creation, we know that there is a God. But yet at the end of his book, he mentions an objection and he says he still has not been able to reconcile this problem of evil, this problem of free will, this problem of if this being did create everything and he is sovereign and governs everything, then why is there evil? Why is there a Nazi? regime? Why is there slavery um, in, in different time periods in on earth? Why are these horrendous acts of abortion and, uh, and school shootings and serial killers? Why do all these things happen if there is a God? And so I know that my student did not ask that, but there are some things that come along with asking, why does God give us choices? So what we are really asking is a question about free will, God's sovereignty, and the problem of evil. So it could have been asked like this. If God is all-knowing, then why would he allow us the freedom to do whatever we wanted, especially if we would do evil? Or this way. God allows us to do bad things, so why would He? why would we be held accountable for them? Or three, why doesn't God put a stop to bad things before they happen? So the first thing we need to look at is what is free will? Not as defined in, in certain groups, but as seen in scripture. So you're not going to see the word um, really free will in scripture or the phrase explicitly God's sovereignty or the phrase problem of evil. But we are going to see scripture is going to... Um, implicitly in a sense expand and expound on these ideas so what is free will so I, I just added a note to say that God has not created us as robots or mindless vessels one of the main objections that you're going to hear to this discussion of free will um, is people are going to argue about well if I don't get to make the final decision 
in general, in certain situations, whether it pertains to salvation, whether it pertains to any other action in life, then basically they're just a robot. If they if they don't have true self-determinism, they are a robot. That That's one objection. But I am saying that even when we look at the biblical understanding of, of our free will and how it works with the sovereignty of God in the problem of evil, we're going to see that we have the ability to think. We are not puppets. God has not created us to be puppets. We are not animals. We don't, we don't, we don't just have a set instinct and therefore it determines how we make every decision and then it's final and God removes himself from the situation. But uh, we, we think we make meaning of things. We question and we do make decisions. We have our own will. We choose what we wear and what to eat, who we marry, where we will attend college, what to study, where to live and what house to buy. And we can go on and on and on and on and make a list of all of the choices over a lifetime that we have the freedom to make that no one is infringing, especially in America, where we love to say this, you know, you can't infringe on our rights. We, we have the freedom to do this and the freedom to do that and the freedom to do this and that we shouldn't have to answer to anybody. We want full 100 complete self-determinism with no consequences and with no accountability. Yet, when we look in scripture in Genesis 2, 15 through 16, we see the Lord gives Adam freedom, yet it is very specific and it does have boundaries. So verse 15, Genesis chapter two, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So, so we see from the beginning that God has purposes that he is planning on the, the man, Adam, that he created to obey and, and operate in. He has an intended goal and purpose. He put him in the Garden of Eden. So God intended for Adam to be in this garden and he wanted him to work and keep it. He intended Adam to do a specific type of activity and behavior and life in this garden. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. So there's that freedom. Hey, you can go eat the orange tree, the apple tree or whatever. You, you can eat of every tree of the garden, garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And, and again, the person, Moses in writing and, and, and explaining Genesis chapter two, th- this is not what he is explicitly communicating. There's a different purpose in what Genesis is bringing about, namely talking about God as our creator. And again, the intent and purpose with which he created all of mankind and all of creation. But if we look at this through the lens of our question, we can look at this passage and see that free will does not mean self-determinism in the sense that you get to choose and do whatever you please, whatever you want without any consequences or accountability, and that God is just permitting you to live your life however you please, whatever. And this is the day and time with which we live in, right? My body, my choice, my body I get to be whatever gender I want to be. And I know that that's a very sensitive subject and I'm not playing light to that, but we can see that this very same issue is kind of in a glimpse, in a glitter, in the detail is kind of inserted in Genesis 15 and 16 in what God is communicating or 15, 16 and 17 in this just simple command to Adam. You have the freedom to do this, but... 
if you go outside this freedom, or we're going to get to see that when you turn this freedom for evil, I, it, God is like, I am, I am governing all of this. I have purposes and plans. Your will cannot infringe on my plans and purposes. And when they do, God's like, I respond to that. I, I actually, from the foundations of the world, foreknew this and therefore have been working that my purposes still were going to happen despite the evil and disobedience and rebellion against my purposes. Because what we're going to see um, in a little bit, so sorry, getting ahead of myself. So we, we have to ask the question when we look at this, how far does our free will extend? Does God only care about certain matters? Did, did God care specifically which tree each day that Adam went to and took fruit from? Was Adam being disobedient if he didn't pray to God and say, well, God, it's Monday at 12 p.m. Should I eat from the apple tree or the orange tree? D does God care about these, these things? Should we pray about what shoes to buy or what shampoo to use? Does free will pertain to isolated actions or the overall intentions of the heart of a person that fuels every action. And from the very beginning, we see that mankind has freedom in their choices. And we see that they would rather evil when they make those choices. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Let's, let's see how this plays out. So the Lord gives, gives Adam that command. You have the freedom to eat every tree but this one. And here's what happens in Genesis 3. And if you're a Christian and you've been in church, then you, you're familiar with this, this story, this literal story. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. Uh, listen to what a theologian, um, Walbius said. The will remains free from coercion, but not free. And he's talking about apart from Christ, but not free to choose between good and evil. The will has been made so evil that it is better described as enslaved than as free. So that's kind of how we have to start off. When we think about what is free will, it is kind of hard for us to think about anything other than people with their freedom of choices choosing evil. That's why when people get on this conversation and on this topic, they always end up asking or landing in the field of, well, if God is giving us this free will, why does he allow evil? Because we know when we look at the world around us, people use their freedom to go about the garden with every tree. They choose the tree that they are forbidden from. Every single time apart from Christ, we would rather evil with our choices. So then next we have to think through what is the sovereignty of God? Well, John Piper calls it providence. 
Um, and the Westminster Confession states, God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So th this is saying that God is the governor, the director, the upholder, the creator of all creatures, of all actions and things from the greatest, that means human beings, in a sense, is what I would assume, not the greatest as in the largest, the greatest as in essence. And God has said he has made us a little lower than the angels. We are the distinct part of creation from the greatest to the least. So down to a plant or a, or a, a grain of sand, the smallest parts of creation is down to atoms. God is over it all. And we see that in Genesis 1 in the creation account. There, there is, um, it's very specific in listing God's creative creation account and the narrative there. Even in Jonah, we see that God appointed a great wind. We know that God is over the, the elements and weather and how that works. God appointed a great fish. He is over all animals and creatures. He appointed a plant. He's even over um, the process of photosynthesis. He appointed a worm to eat the plant. So the small creeping things and he appointed scorching heat. Um, again, all of this to teach Jonah a lesson about the magnitude of, of who he is and how his purposes are going to go forth. Again, whether you want to be a part of those purposes and submissive in working and living in your life according to those purposes or not, he is going to fulfill them. Even in the Gospels, Jesus tells a wave to quiet and it says, yes, sir, and follow suit. Our God is over all of creation all actions from atoms to asteroids. God is in control, governing their existence into, unto his purposes. God is not a control freak. He has purposes and goals for all of human history. And it was that way before the foundations of the world. So the first thing we realize is that from the very beginning, we see that mankind has freedom in their choices. And we see that they would rather work for evil. But number two, we see that our will extends as far as our good works for the glory of God and the good of others. But our will ends as far as our evil works against the glory of God and the demise of others. Either way, whether we work as human beings for good or evil, either way, God's purpose to be glorified and worshiped will happen. Listen to Genesis chapter 50. Verses 15 through 21 says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? 
Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph says in the very beginning, what man means for evil, God means it for good. Our purposes end as they work for evil and against the glory of God. And Joseph is telling us, how, well, how's that possible? How, how's God? Because whatever you mean for evil, God means it for good. His purposes to be glorified, to be lifted up for every nation, tribe, and tongue will happen. Listen to it put this way by Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. So from there, from the first two main things that we see when we have to answer this question, why does God give us choices? We first see that with our choices, we work for evil. But number two, we see that our will and the freedom that God has given us to choose things only extends so far as for good and for his glory. And it ends. It ends. It's a stark end as we work for evil and for the demise of others and when we work against his glory. But either way, God's purpose is that creation would flourish and that he would be lifted up and glorified and given the worship and honor that he deserves. So three, three key things that we must think on in light of this. Number one, mankind at his core hates, despises, and works against the glory of God in their freedom that God has given them in their choices. And we're going to see this in Romans chapter 3 verses 11 through 18. I love this passage of scripture. Um, it is actually quoted elsewhere in the Old Testament, but we're going to read it in Romans chapter 3 since we're going to look at a lot of different verses from Romans as we think through this. Romans 3 verses 11 through or verses 10 through 18. As it is written, none is righteous, no not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Mankind hates the glory of God. With all of their free will, with all of the freedom that God has given them to live this life, they respond in stark rebellion, with stark wickedness and evil. Mankind despises God being lifted up in the place that he deserves. That's number one. Number two, as a loving creator, God desires that we use our freedom of the will to respond to him in loving, faithful obedience rather than dictating our submission. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through five. I love 
Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love it. Listen to what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So God is saying with the entirety of who you are, with the entirety of your intentions that influence the decisions that you make with your heart, with your soul and with your mind, God desires that with all of that freedom, we respond to him in loving, faithful obedience. You can hear it another way in John chapter 14, verse 21. These are the words of our God himself coming to take on flesh on our behalf. Listen to what Jesus says. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So Jesus is saying, if you love me, you're going to respond in obedience. You're not just going to respond in love with your life. You're going to respond with obedience with your life. With this freedom of choosing, you're going to make a conscious decision in order to respond in obedience to the Lord and to his word and to his commandments. And the Lord does not dictate our submission. But this is what he does. In light of what the Lord desires, yet what mankind hates and instead would choose to do. The beauty in the story of the Bible, number three, of the gospel of salvation is that while we work for evil, God works for good. While we work for destruction, God works for his glory. Our God is a God who works for us while we work against him. Listen to Romans 5 verses 6 through 11. Our God is a God who works for us while we work against him. Verse 6, for while we were still weak. Listen to that. You're going to hear that while. But listen to what God was doing. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So in light of that, in light of those three things, in light of mankind's hatred for God's glory, therefore continuing to live in disobedience and sin and evil, and in light of God desiring for us to respond to him in loving, faithful obedience and, and working on our behalf, although we are constantly working against him and his purposes, the Bible makes us reframe our question. We have to now ask not why would God allow evil, rather, why would he work evil for the good of people who exploit their freedom for purposes of wickedness, rather than expounding their freedom for the praise of his glory? That's the real question. Why would God ever intervene? 
Why, why, why didn't it end with Adam and Eve and God cut it off there? Why would God take what Satan meant for evil and work it for our good and his glory? Why? Well, I think that scripture gives us an idea of why. Listen to what Romans chapter 2 verses 4 through 10 says about our God and his character. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. God's response to the sin and evil in the heart of man is one of grace, mercy, justice, and kindness. Listen to what the Lord says about himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So here's the truth. When we stand before God, we are not going to be able to say, Lord, why didn't you intervene? with the evil of this world. Lord, why didn't you stop me from continuing in my hard-heartedness and my rebellion and my wickedness and my evil against you and your glory and against the goodness that you set out to have in your Christian? No one is going to stand before God and ask that question. But those apart from Christ who will stand before him are going to experience but for a moment before passing away into an eternity of wrath and judgment apart from God, they are going to recognize a God who is merciful and gracious and was slow to anger with them and was abounding in steadfast love towards them and faithful faithfulness towards them who kept steadfast love for thousands of generations of wicked and, and evil and rebellious people who forgave iniquity and transgression and sin, but who is going to look at them and will by no means clear the guilty and hold them accountable for their choices. Yet the good news is for those who are in Christ, for those who have trusted the work of Christ, 
against the work of evil. For those who have thrown away the works of the flesh and have trusted in the work of the spirit, they will stand before God and they will see and the Lord will see them in his son and they will get to pass into eternity. Not because they were not workers of evil at one point in their life, not because they were not enemies at one point in their life, not because they were not sinners at one point in their life, but because they trusted in the work of Christ and the purposes of God. And they clung to God and chose and decided that they want to lift God up and worship him and give him the glory and honor he deserved rather than working for the glory of themselves. So the question again is, As God is working against evil, what are you doing with the freedom that he has given you in hopes that you respond to him in loving, faithful obedience? And I hope the answer would not be a question. I hope the answer would be, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And with all of the freedom that you have given me to worship you, I have worshiped idols and I have worshiped myself. Would you forgive me? Lord, I trust in the name of your son, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins because he did a work that no person on this earth could ever do. And he took on the evil intentions and evil and rebellious and wicked actions of all of the world. To work good for what Satan and man meant for evil. Amen.